0: How you gonna keep down on the farm after they've seen Paris? How you gonna keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? More than a hundred years ago, way back in 1919, one of America's biggest I'm musical hits was a short little ditty with a very long Paris, title. How are you gonna keep, keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? It was just a simple and very silly tune but the truth is it reflected some very significant changes that were going on in the country at that time, as well as an enduring truth that we can easily understand today. When that song came out, World War I had just ended, and the cost of that war had been incredible. Over 3 million American soldiers had been sent overseas, and more than 116,000 of them had died. In addition, 200,000 were badly injured. After all that pain, after all that sacrifice, American popular culture seemed eager to turn the page to quickly switch the focus to lighter and more carefree subjects. For example, instead of focusing on the soldiers' suffering, this song focused on what the young man had seen over there, sights that many of them could never have imagined earlier. Paris, for example. The city was a complete contrast to what many of these young men were used to. It was open. It was exhilarating. It was filled with beauty, inspiration, and creativity. Seriously, how could anyone expect those young soldiers to be satisfied with returning to their past lives in small towns and isolated farms after having had an injection of the beauty, elegance, and excitement of the City of Lights? And all of us, immediately, we all get it. The song title says it all. Really, how the hell do you think they're going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? It's an age-old, often-repeated question. And it's definitely not only the Americans who have been asking it. Anyone who's ever visited the city can easily understand. Paris, with its famous avenues, impressive architecture, and beautiful elegance, has held an almost magnetic attraction for centuries. And perhaps most notably, it has always been a favorite destination of artists and other creative talents. Those who often find it very tough to leave, once they realize just how inspiring the surroundings can be. Hello, I'm John Gilligan. Welcome to our very first L'atelier Balmain podcast. Today and over the next few months, we'll be exploring together a little bit of the singular history, craftsmanship, and creativity that make Balmain such a distinctive and fascinating house. I am Olivier Rousteing.
1: Welcome to my world. Welcome to my world. Bienvenue à l'atelier Balmain. Bienvenue à l'atelier
0: Today we're going to be talking about beginnings. More specifically, we're going to be exploring a bit of the pre-Balmain history two of Balmain's best-known creative directors, Pierre Balmain, the founder of the house, and Olivier Riston, the current creative director. Both of those men were once provincials which is how Parisians refer to those born outside the capital, an adjective that is often used with just the slightest touch of disdain. But since childhood, each was determined to live, to study, and to work in Paris. And each worked as hard as he could to make that Parisian dream happen. Both Pierre Balmain and Olivier Roustong managed to make their dream a reality. And in so doing, they've managed to transform themselves into true Parisians. It's important to note, though, that their distinct pathways to Paris and to Balmain weren't always the most direct. Olivier Riston, the present creative director of Balmain, has always been filled with an admiration for the house's founder, Pierre Balmain. Every time I go through the
1: house archives, I am blown away by the impressive legacy that Monsieur Balman, Mr. Balmain, has left behind for us. Decade after decade of impressively intricate details, always impeccable tailoring, and and I would say wonderfully imaginative sculptural shapes, there is so much that impresses me about this man, his skills, his eye and his work. And, and I also love the story of his progression from a childhood in a small mountain village to becoming the founder of one of, I would say yes, one of fashion's most important couture house.
0: Long before Pierre Balmont founded his eponymous house 75 years ago, he was just a small-town boy from saint jean de Maurienne, which is a tiny little village perched way up high in the mountains of Savoy. Savoy is the remote and very beautiful Alpine region of France, set on the border of Switzerland and Italy. Pierre Balmont's family name, as he liked to point out, underlined his family's deep connection to the area in an extremely unique way. A local legend has it that centuries ago, Villagers rescued a young boy who was found unconscious high in the neighboring mountains. After they brought him back to Saint-Jean and revived him, he could not manage to remember either his name or from where he came. So the villagers decided to name him Balman, since they had found him on the nearby Mount Balm. Pierre Balman was an only child, born in 1914, just months before World War I broke out. His mother, Françoise, was of French and Italian ancestry, with her father coming from the nearby Italian-speaking region of Switzerland. Pierre's father, Maurice, came from an old and established family of the region. Unfortunately, Maurice died very young, at age 48, when Pierre was only seven years old. He left the family settled with many debts, and it was because of those debts that Françoise had to go work with her two sisters at Les Galeries Parisiennes, the local dress shop. It's
1: kind of funny to note how everything seems predestinated for Pierre Balmain. I mean, seriously, his mother had to go work creating dresses and her shop was actually named for Paris. There seems to have been a pattern set from the very beginning. He was, I would say, destined for both, for fashion and for Paris.
0: Young Pierre seems to have really loved spending time at La Galerie Parisienne. He'd grab scraps of fabric off the floor to make costumes for the small figurines that were giving starring roles in the many plays that Pierre created to amuse himself. As a child, I was always playing with the small objects
2: that I would create for myself, like the dolls that I would play with for a long period of time. Now, these were not the type of dolls that we think of today those dolls that are designed to apple to a child maternal longings. No, my creations were designed to serve as models or characters. I would then cast them in the extraordinary adventures that I invented specifically for them. The creation came to life in those childish games that I invented. I crafted them from scrap and paper. They looked a lot like the characters from classic fable and Renaissance tales. At first glance, that looked a bit like Russian dolls, which were quite popular in France after the First World War. The type of dolls that were created using true materials, including felt, wool, wool, leather. But my creation relied on the shop like wrapping paper and little scrap of recovered fabrics. I even gave them little shoes. I crafted some leather scraps and I attached them by needles to the end of the legs. These little creations form part of my
0: very strong early passion for the
2: theatre.
0: This devotion to plays and to theatre is something that would remain with Pierre Baman for his entire life. It is clearly something he inherited from his parents, who would love performing together with local troops. Pierre would often dig through his parents' old chest of costumes. He would modify whatever he discovered in order to create the outfits for the skits that he was writing and staging with his cousins, his village friends, and later his fellow students. It's clear to see that Pierre Balmain was a lucky kid. Growing up high in his beautiful mountain village, he was very far removed from the bloody struggles that were tearing the rest of Europe apart. Instead, he was able to enjoy a happy childhood, and he was very close to his family and he was especially close to his mother, Françoise. And truth is, Françoise Balman seems to have been quite a force of nature, as Olivier Rustong notes.
1: From what we know, Madame Balman seems to have been a very stylish woman, and more than anything, she seems to have released pushing every single button in the conservative little town of Saint-Jean-de-Maurienne. She was set on doing whatever it was that she wanted to do. For example, hiking up into the mountains to ski, long before it was acceptable for women to wear trousers, much less ski. In addition, she set herself apart by always dressing in the latest Parisian fashion. There is a short paragraph in Bauman's biography that I love, when he described the moment when he left for boarding school, when his mother insisted on taking him to the station in her Jean Patou-inspired ensemble, which was topped off with a stylish cloche. It's clear that Françoise was very much the type of woman that Pierre designed for and that continues to wear Bauman today. Those women who belongs to what we call our famous barman army. Very stylish, open-minded rebels who know who they are, what they want, and how they want to dress. But I would say the truth is, who could imagine Pierre not having a mother like that?
0: Beaumont's fascination with Paris seems to have really kicked in after Francoise sent him away to boarding school. That school was in Chambéry, the administrative capital of the region. Beaumont's uncle André, who was his mother's youngest brother, lived just 20 minutes away in the resort town of aix le bains Aix, just in case you haven't heard of it before, is an incredibly beautiful alpine resort set high up on one of France's largest mountain lakes. Throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries, it was also a very exclusive vacation spot, favored by European kings and queens, including Queen Victoria and other British royals, as well as aristocrats, artists, and celebrities from all parts of the continent. Bahman loved the exciting atmosphere of the resort. He'd often sneak away from school in order to see the latest French plays there while they were on tour from Paris. He also boldly introduced himself to several French designers when they were vacation there. Those designers definitely inspired him as they took the time to explain how Paris' fashion world really worked while making clear how much they loved creating the latest popular styles of the day. Those encounters with designers energized, excited, and motivated Bauman to find out more about Paris, about culture, and about fashion. He began to read voraciously, searching through newspapers and magazines for articles on the latest Paris openings, creations, and shows. He was always looking for more information about the star designers of his childhood, Jean Patou, Coco Chanel, Jacques Doucet. And just like most of us, he seems to have been fascinated as much by their talent and creation as by the press coverage of their celebrity friends, incredible mansions, beautiful vacations, and very extravagant parties. By 1933, school was coming to an end. And at age 19, it seems that Pierre Balmain had his mind made up. He knew he had to go to Paris, and he knew he had to become a fashion designer. But there was just one tiny problem. His mother seems to have been just as determined that Pierre Balmain would soon be joining the French Navy. Balmain's current creative director, Olivier Reston, is also a child of the French provinces, having grown up in the very beautiful very aristocratic city of Bordeaux and France's southwest. Just like Pierre Balmont, Olivier Roustong knew from a very early age that he wanted to go to Paris to study and work in fashion. But Roustong's pathway and his childhood were quite different from those of Pierre Balmont. Those of you who have seen the film Wonder Boy, the award-winning and emotional documentary about Olivier Roustong's search for answers about his origins, you already know that he began life as an orphan. As a black child, adopted by loving white parents, he grew up obsessed with questions regarding heritage, race, belonging, and fitting in. And as he recently explained to the press before showing his latest collection in Paris, that did not make his childhood any easier. You know,
1: I will tell you something. Growing up in Bordeaux, perhaps the most bourgeois city in all of France, I learned from an early age that certain classes, clubs, and I would say cliques were closed off to someone who looked like me. And I spent countless hours dreaming and scheming about how I could cross over. You know, opening doors and, and
0: just be accepted. The truth is, Olivier Roustong's childhood preoccupation with closed doors and exclusive clubs is very much reflected in his recent runway appropriations of certain upper-class signatures. For his latest Paris show, the designer cleverly twisted and subverted codes of a world that was once beyond his reach. The fall 2020 collection rethinks and modernizes signatures, patterns, and rich fabrics that were once associated with a rarefied world of old families, privilege, and wealth. But somehow, Rustang ends up making them surprisingly modern, and very, very much of today. You know, paradoxalement,
1: I mean, how you say par- uh, "paradoxal" in English? I mean, yeah, paradoxically, my collection adapts those symbols of upper-class exclusion and you know, twists them to turn the focus on a wider and no longer closed-off world, one of open doors and open minds. My team and I have subverted the old and restricting classist codes of previous generations. You know, we are rethinking and modernizing them in order to offer something fresh and very much of today, if I can say. So, now, you have an area of design that is now open to all, one which reflects the inclusive values of today's Bauman and the beautiful diversity, yes, I would say diversity, of a truly modern France.
0: Mirroring the youthful passions of Pierre Balmain, Olivier Roustong's love of Paris and his dreams of moving to the French capital began quite early. When Roustong decided to show his spring 28 collection at Paris's opulent Opera Garnier, he and his team had a planning meeting held inside the famous building's dazzling interior. That moment brought back a flood of memories to Roustong, for it was precisely at that location more than two decades earlier during a family trip to Paris where he first began dreaming of his move to the city and working there as a designer. To mark this very special moment, the 32-year-old Olivier Rustong decided to write a letter to the 10-year-old Olivier Rostong, that same young boy who was visiting the Paris Opera for the first time in 1995.
1: You know this sense of wow that you're feeling as you walk into Garnier-Desling Opera's house it won't be just a one-time thing, and it cannot be a one-time thing. Of course, the intensity will diminish over the years, but I can tell you, twenty-two years after this moment. That this same merveillement will hit you each and every time you return. Yes, right now you might just be a 10 years old kid from the province, wrapping your first visit to the capital with a night at the opera, but this is destined to become a guiding memory for you, crystallizing into another symbol of the future that you dream about. Just like, <laughs> just like. You know, those music posters plastered across your bedroom walls and all those fashion editorials you keep tearing out of magazines. And from where I am now, I really know just one thing. Dreams like yours sometimes actually do come true. But you have to believe it. And yes, you're going to return to Paris to design for a historic house. You are going to work with those same supermodels that now blown you away you're going to meld your design with the creation of musicians who inspire you and yes you are going to return to this singular space several times actually most notably in 2017 when your design will be worn by Les Étoiles de l'Opéra during a May Ballet premiere and then again just a few months later when you show your spring 2018 collection here you know it's hard but half of me wishes that I could go back in time, to tell you all of that. But the other half knows that. As tired as the old cliche might be, life's real richness actually does come from undertaking the journey.
0: Pierre Valmont always knew how to get what he wanted. He worked out a clever scheme to persuade his mother to let him go to Paris. He feigned an interest in architecture and convinced her to let him live at Paris's Cite Universitaire. He promised her that he would sit in on classes in the morning and then work in the afternoon as an intern in the studio of a well-known architect. Pierre's plan convinced Françoise and Pierre Balmain was soon on his way to begin a new life in Paris. As soon as he arrived, Pierre Bauman began his full-time search to work his way into fashion. Despite all those promises that he had made to his mother, school and internships were quickly abandoned. And just as quickly, Bauman discovered the lively life of Paris that he had long dreamed about. Among Bauman's many new Parisian friends was Jean Le Sayu, who was a producer of reviews at famous nightclubs including the Lido and Fali Berger. When Bauman's money quickly evaporated and his mother threatened to cut him off, it was Le who managed to land him interviews with the star fashion designers of the time, including Robert Piguet, Lucien Lalonde, and Henry edward Molyneux. Piguet and Lalonde weren't all that interested, although Piguet did buy three sketches, but Bauman was able to talk Molyneux into giving him a five-month trial period. After just three weeks, that trial period turned into a full-time position. The position continued even after Bauman was called up for his French Army service in 1936. And since he was stationed in Paris, Bauman would simply go AWOL every day to go work at Molyneux. Molyneux was a dashing British designer who was known to his friends and colleagues as the captain, due to his previous military career that had cost him the sight in one eye. When Balmain started working for him, Molyneux was perhaps at the peak of his success in Paris fashion. He was dressing the major stars of the day, including Greta Garbo, Marlena Dietrich, and Vivienne Leigh. As Bauman explained in his memoirs, the most important thing that he learned at Molyneux was to avoid anything that could be described as superfluous. Instead, Molyneux drilled into him the importance of concentrating on the power and strength of construction and simplicity. Bauman learned from the master how to strip everything back to the essential and to say only what needed to be said in as few words as possible. In couture, he learned, there is nothing more difficult than designing a beautiful and simple dress.
2: It was with Molyneux where I began learning the most important lesson of my youth. Yes, he did teach me how one creates a garment. But more importantly, it tells me that the key ingredient in elegance is what we call dépouillement, a true simplicity and purity. It taught me that one should never create a gown by simply adding some extra decoration or additional ornament. Instead, we should always see if it's possible to remove something. Day after day, in a fashion atelier, a gown returns to its creator. And each time, it's important to try to take something away, to simplify it it's important to avoid focusing on ornamentation. Instead, I was told that one should always concentrate on form and
0: on the architecture of the creation itself.
2: Cut to
0: just a few years later and Baman was already feeling frustrated, restless and ready to move on. He was a headstrong young man, he was eager to advance and he was desperate for more responsibility. He decided to leave Molyneux and to take a job at Lucien Nalong, but he soon realized that perhaps that wasn't the smartest of moves. Le Long he came to see was a house that was past its peak of success, and from the very beginning his relationship with Lucien Nalong seems to have never been very good. It seemed clear to everyone that Bauman was not going to last very long at Lucien Nalong. And then suddenly, everything changed. It was September in 1939. Germany had invaded Poland, and Europe was once again at war. Bauman was sent back to Savoy to work for the French Army's Alpine defenses. After France fell and the occupation of Vichy were established, he was once again demobilized. Baman decided to remain in Aix, where his mother's family had opened a second dress shop. He was lucky to be able to rely on his family friendship with the local police chief, who managed to save him from the fate of so many other young men his age, being sent to Germany to work for the German war machine as forced labor. During the occupation of France, the Nazis had a plan to make Berlin the new fashion capital of Europe. Their plan forced relocation of the fashion and textile houses to Germany would have meant the loss of thousands of jobs in France, adding to the already considerable suffering in the country. Lucie Nalong, who was the head of the powerful trade council that set the standards, procedures, and rules for the fashion industry, was determined to thwart the Nazi relocation plans. Lelong went to Aix to persuade Berman to return to Paris and work for him, as well as with another French designer that Lucien Lelong had recently hired, Christian Dior. Pierre Berman and Christian Dior, although quite different in personality, seem to have gotten along very well as they worked together for Lucien Lelong. Their combined talent transformed the house, as Berman later explained in his memoirs changing Lelong from a house where a woman could get a dress to one where she simply had to get a dress. Dior was 10 years older than Bauman and his much calmer personality helped soothe things whenever Bauman and Lelong would have one of their very many fights. As they worked, Bauman and Dior often talked about their hopes to leave Lelong and found their own houses. And they even discussed the possibility of leaving together to form their own joint house. It's important that we note the obvious. The occupation was a terrible time. It was filled with unspeakable horrors and great hardship for many. And of course, not everyone who stayed in Paris during the occupation was a collaborator. Resistance took all forms, from Francoise Balmain's decision to daily pin a trio of flags, French, American, and British, over her heart and under her jacket, to the brave resistance fighters that were friends and acquaintances of Pierre Balmain, some of whom were later captured and sent to the camps. Bauman actually did have one opportunity to flee the country. It happened in 1942, when Lucien Lalong sent him to Barcelona for an international trade fair. Spain had remained neutral during the war. And while there, Balman thought about the possibilities of fleeing into either London or New York. But in the end, he realized that he had taken on too many responsibilities to be able to do so and he decided to return to Paris because he was afraid of endangering the jobs of the 400 employees that worked with him at Lucien Long. During the occupation, most of Lelong's showroom clients were either the wives of French officials or the wives of wealthy industrialists. There were actually very few German clients, but Madame Abetz did shop at Long. She was the French wife of the very infamous Otto Abetz, the German ambassador to Vichy who would later be convicted as a war criminal. Bauman actually recalls standing behind the curtain during a showing in 1943, making snide remarks to Dior about those in the seats in front of them who were enjoying the fruits of wartime profiteering and plunder. In reply, Dior joked, Yeah, just think, all those women who are going to be shot wearing the long... just like so many other Frenchmen, Balmain spent his evenings listening to the BBC. Throughout the spring and summer of 1944, he followed the advances of Allied troops as they worked their way toward the French capital after the successful landings in Normandy. In his memoirs, he mentions being at a dinner with his friend, the designer, Cristobo Balenciaga, at the very moment Paris was liberated. He writes about the incredible emotion that they all felt as they heard the city below them erupted in Marseillaise as General Leclerc's free French forces finally entered the city. A new powerful spirit of post-liberation optimism seemed to have pushed Pierre Valmont to finally leave Lucien along and establish his own fashion house. While he was helping a friend look for an apartment, he saw an aristocratic townhouse on the Rue Francois Premier that had previously been requisitioned for Nazi soldiers. As you can imagine, the quarters had recently been abandoned in quite a hurry. When he heard that the owners were planning to convert the spaces into commercial leases, Pierre Balmain made a life-changing decision right there and right then. That space on 44 Francois Premier was destined to become the new atelier and showroom for his new fashion house, the House of Balmain and that address was destined to continue as the location of Balmain's iconic Parisian flagship throughout the house's 75-year history. Balmain set to work, and he had a crazy amount of work to do. He needed to finish his final duties at Le Long, and he needed to round up all the cash needed to hire a team, pay the rent, and create a first collection for Paris's first post-war house, the house of Balmain. Françoise was, of course, willing to help with the money. She pawned her diamond ring without telling Pierre. The incredible boldness that Pierre Balmain showed in starting his own house in such an unsettled moment is something that still impresses Olivier Restong today.
1: You know, one of the many things that impressed me about Pierre Balmain is his audaciousness. When Monsieur Balmain founded his couture house in the fall of 1945, He was taking a very, very daring bet. After years of war, invasion, and occupation, he believed in the possibilities of new beginnings and better days ahead. You know, I believe that optimism and daring still form part of this house DNA. It's something that continually inspires me and my team, especially today, as so many around the world join together to work for progress and better days ahead.
0: After he managed to persuade his parents to let him study fashion instead of law, Olivier Roustong left Bordeaux. He headed up to Paris to begin his classes at ESMOD, which is one of France's leading design schools. Then at 18, school was over and Roustong headed to Italy, where he worked at Roberto Cavalli in Florence. Roustong worked for Cavalli for five years, beginning as a lowly intern and rising steadily and surely through the ranks until he was finally named designer for Cavalli's men's and women's ready-to-wear collections. But when the opportunity came for him to return to Paris, Roustong did not think twice. He accepted the offer to join Balmain and headed back to the French capital. For two years, Olivier Roustong worked as part of Balmain's design team. Then in 2011, he was selected as the house's creative director. The confidence that Balmain placed in him is frankly impressive. At just 25, Olivier Rostang was the youngest person to be named head of an historic Parisian couture house since 1957, when a 21-year-old Yves Saint Laurent was named the head of Dior. And Olivier Roustong is very conscious of his unique background and his singular position.
1: You know, I would say I've never been the typical creative director of a major house. My background is different, which is how it should be. We live in a very different time. I see firsthand how my generation lives and I understand how they want to dress. More than anything, I'm privileged witness to the openness. And I would say to optimism and honesty of this dynamic moment, we are going through so many rapid evolution in art and in communication, popular culture and music. And You know, those changes constantly inspire me and are always reflected in my collection. They allow me not only to design clothes, but perhaps also to shake up things
0: a little and offer a new vision to fashion. And he definitely has shaken things up. Olivier Roustong's distinctive way of thinking has been a force for change in fashion. His determination to democratize and diversify fashion is personal for him. He's also determined to explore new ways of communicating directly with the house's followers. And he seems to take a special joy in learning innovative manners of creating and forming unexpected, entertaining, and always exciting types of partnerships. Over the next few weeks, as our podcast explore the one-of-the-kind world of The House of Balmain, every step we'll see how Olivier Ruston continues to build upon the singular vision of Pierre Balmain and the rich heritage of his 75-year-old house.